Hello, ahoy, and bonjour. I'm Tom Watley, and this episode of Make a Mixtapes is about all things direct to consumer, making wine education accessible to all. Make a Mixtapes is a podcast about creators and business folk doing cool things. Today, I'm joined by Josh Lakovic, founder of The Wine List, a wine subscription service that makes the educational side of wine easy to access and digest. Here, we talk about Josh's time at Packed Coffee as part of the growth team, as well as his time as head of growth at Thriver, building out a growth team that still excels at the company today. If you're into the subscription business model, wine, growth, coffee, and all things CPG, then you're gonna love this episode. Let's get right to it. Cool. Josh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Tom. It's great to join you too. So I've noticed that you started the wine list in 2019, but before that you led growth at companies like Fiverr and Pact and all that good stuff. I'd love to hear about your experiences at those companies and how they kind of set you up for where you are today with the wine list. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of kind of big growth roles I had um, prior. So I joined Pact. It was a, just before I raised a Series A and I was there in the growth team. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't leading the team there. I was just in the growth team in a print marketing role. And that was kind of off the back of being having done digital marketing for an agency for a couple of years before then. So it was completely different going into that role then as a, as a kind of previously digital marketer to so suddenly start thinking about kind of print marketing and things like that. All my kind of career has been in in kind of market, digital marketing and, and growth roles broadly, uh, depending on the company. So, yeah, I spent a couple of years in kind of digital and content to begin with, went to Pact, um, which was my first kind of taste of starter experience and print marketing, which then essentially made, meant inserts, which was their biggest channel at the time when I joined. Yeah, spent a long time kind of getting scripts of inserts, applying kind of the sort of analytical thinking, which you would usually apply to digital channels, to print channels and then starting to think about partnerships and things like that. And it was it was a really great, uh, great time to be there. It was, you know, that time when things like HelloFresh and Gusto and 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 Beer 52 and all those sorts of now kind of reasonably household names were all kind of starting off. Um, so it was a very exciting time in those early days of the kind of London food and drink startup scene, I guess. So yeah, learned lots about more about kind of startup life than anything else, really, kind of the kind of pace and expectation and you know, realize how, how fast you learn in those sorts of environments compared to, I guess, more corporate environments. And so, yeah, I spent about a year or so there, then went into a very traditional business, a, a, actually an education business, a schools group, which ran a series of uh, summer schools um, where I kind of was brought in to help kind of digitize a lot of that and kind of bring online, do digital marketing for the first time, kind of think about some things a, a bit more kind of product way, I guess, which was really good fun, lots of challenges there as well. Uh, and yeah, it was when I joined Thriver about four years ago now, four or five years ago now, as their first employee and head of growth, which was probably the most substantial learning experience I had, just in, in, in general. That was when I joined, it was a free co-founders and myself sat around a table. We had, you know, a thousand customers and and by the time I'd left, there were a team of 50 people and the growth team was five people and they were kind of 80,000 customers. So very much kind of saw those kind of rocky road, all the kind of the milestones of of getting loads and loads of things wrong and then kind of learning how to you know spot think when things are right and prioritization and things like that and so 
yeah, you know, all, all of those experiences definitely helped with founding Winelist. I think the kind of, yeah, as you pointed out, Pact and Thrive were the two most impactful ones of those. Yeah, I can imagine. And I finally managed to get my hands on some packed coffee over Christmas, actually. I didn't think I was going to like it at first, but it was pretty delicious. And putting myself in the foot, like the, the shoes of a consumer... I imagine that might have been quite a barrier to entry in the early days as well. Did you, you know, come across any particular challenges when growing a, you know, CPG subscription service back then, especially as it was so nascent at the time? Um, I think the we at Pact used to do a pretty big discount offer. So for bags back then, they only had the kind of core tier, which was either six or seven ninety nine. And you know, at the time, if you walked into Tesco or Waitrose, you could only find coffee that kind of capped at about two pound fifty a bag. So that was, you know, kind of essentially three times the price, which was pretty substantial. And the way we got round up was kind of discounting on first bags. We did. Uh, first bag was one pound, which led to actually very, very affordable acquisition. I think for enough people who are willing to take a punt on a bag for a pound, the retention rates kind of getting from first to second bag or kind of to activate were much harder than than you would find otherwise when you do kind of smaller discounts. So that was the kind of way around it. We we did it then. I also think kind of a lot of advertising channels are a lot cheaper. You know, we did one of the very first adverts on Reddit, which cost us essentially nothing. Facebook, that was eight years ago, was really, really cheap back then. Inserts and magazines and other boxes were very, very cheap as well. So yeah, it was it was a kind of much it was a new concept and a and a high value compared to what norm was product but i think also advertising was cheap then as well yeah looks like you jumped on those emerging channels which is it, it must have you know really decreased those acquisition rates but as as you put it acquisition sorry not acquisition activation from that one pound bag into you know a second third lifetime customer what were the challenges there and how did you kind of get those people to stick around and try more um you know we we, we, we tried lots of things and i think this was a a really good example of kind of startup culture generally. There was a, an idea which came from somebody in, so they had, um, they had a kind of packing factory bit next to the main office, which where they did roasting and then sending the bags out. And, you know, everyone, whether you were just a kind of part-time packer or anybody else would all kind of come together on a Friday for Friday drinks. And there'd always be opportunities to share, you know, ideas and kind of experiments essentially. And an experiment came out of the, the packing factory, which was, why don't we call up our customers to make sure they're getting their bags okay and things like that. And so one person led an experiment, which was with the view that if we call up our customers, they're going to have a better relationship with us, they're going to be more likely to activate. And yeah, led that experiment. And it was successful. It had an in, in, increase in activation rates. I, I can't remember what they were, um, sadly, but it had an increase in the activation rates. And then that person's job became the person to call call up all new customers and that was kind of their role so you know we, we did things like that and those are kind of i guess reasonably costly experiments you know we, we just experiments with kind of the usual things as well you know email and, and how to kind of time those different things and yeah those were a lot of experiments i think there was a an acceptance we we also did experiment with with kind of first offer i think the most significant impact is and this has been true in everywhere i've been your discount's going to have the biggest impact on kind of retention activation retention and so it's it's a case of measuring, you know, what production and CPA is compared to what the impacts on LTV is going to be ultimately, and factoring things like payback as well. So, yeah, it's all it's all maths at the end of the day. Yeah, isn't it just? So I guess speaking of things that don't scale, very startupy growth term. 
building out a team at a startup is a tremendous amount of work. Did you have any processes at Thriver that made that a little bit more, you know, easier? And how did you attract great talent for such a young company? Yeah, um, Thriver was a really interesting one. And, and you're doing things that don't scale is something I really firmly believe in. I think, especially when you're, you're kind of pre-product market fit, you know, those Ultimately, it's going to be conversations which give you more insight than data and the cost of running experiments when you're, you know, having a hypothesis based on data sets is very tricky. So, you know, having direct relationships with consumers, your customers is, is really important. Generally, within startups, in terms of kind of building teams, the Thriver team in general were, were all fantastic and, and are still fantastic. And the growth team in particular, I would say that I'm biased, the growth team in particular were great. Yeah, we had a kind of five-person team and we broadly split them across kind of channel or kind of or functions. So, you know, we had a performance marketing person who was brought in as a grad and we taught them kind of Facebook and, and things like that, which is our biggest channel. And um, she, that's something called Anushka, she's still running that today. Today, but she came from a kind of science background, so kind of very kind of quant-focused background, and that's what we kind of looked for for that sort of role. Then we had other people in partnerships who came from far more, yeah, kind of partnerships, community type backgrounds as well. And I think we, the thing which was both advantageous and disadvantageous, that's the opposite of that word, of somewhere like Thriver is because the mission is one of, it's, it's so, it's a really good, wholesome mission, you know, they're trying to put better health in everyone's hands there are lots of people motivated by that from a from a mission perspective and um, which is fantastic because it means you get a huge huge pool of people applying for those roles the inverse of that is you know there's, there's, there's lots of kind of people who we'd often get people kind of applied for roles which might apply for other like very non-startup environments and you know we've always kind of prioritized startup experience both at Thriver in the growth team and and here at Winelist as well we kind of prioritize startup experience over most other things so you'd often get people who really, really um, driven by the mission, but maybe weren't kind of used to the environment and weren't a good environment fit. So yeah, I think the environment, that, that environment, SaaS environment fits one of the things I always look out for, which was which was a great thing to be able to, be able to do at Thriver. Yeah, definitely. Was um, Did you end up hiring anyone who, or taking a risk on anyone who didn't have that startup experience at all? And did it ever pay off? Or was, you know, that part of the reason that you stick to it at the wine list today? I think within the, within the wider team there, there were, you know, especially when you think that, that uh, Thrive, you had a, a medical team and, you know, those are people who are doctors, former doctors, you know, that's, that's who they had to be in. And they basically used to do really well. But, you know, again, it's not, it's not something that every doctor would have been able to do. You had to have a very specifically minded type of person. And the medical team there were, um, you know, very much of that. Within growth, I guess, you know, again, we took somebody on as a grad who very much it was their first proper office-based experience, so instilled that kind of startup focus early. We had somebody joined from an agency, so JB, who is a, a motion graphics videographer, came from an agency background, again, suited in, kind of fitted in very well. So it's definitely not a kind of hard and fast rule, but, you know, you, you kind of have... You, it's something to kind of be be aware of when people aren't from startup backgrounds because yeah, I think I think broadly kind of the, the, one of the big startup differences is and I've often asked this question in interviews when they when they're not from a startup I say you know what what do you think it is to be in a startup the worst possible response is when somebody says oh I think it's gonna be like a really relaxed environment how wrong they are <laughs> yeah and it's and it's yes yeah, it's, it's a really tricky one but yeah always kind of just looking out for the fact that you know there is in certain ways a lot less support you're going to get elsewhere you know there aren't kind of multi-stage training programs you're going to go through you know both at Thriver and at Winelist we have kind of performance development plans which we've brought in early which is like very antithetical for startups for our stage but you know it's those sorts of things which are the outliers not the norm and 
And even though we have them, they're probably not going to be as developed as if you're, you know, a FTSE 100 or something company instead. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just quickly touch on one thing you mentioned there. Was Did you say the motion graphics designer was one of the, the five hires that you got on board yeah that's right um so yeah the growth, interesting yes yeah, so the growth team um was a partnerships person uh, a content person uh, like a, a copywriter who was our kind of content marketer and then the yeah the next hire after that was our, our motion graphics and yeah that, that's pretty niche you, you know a lot of startups even get agencies or freelancers why did you decide to hire that full-time i think the you know for either when I was there, Facebook and Instagram were the unpaid social with the main drivers of, of acquisition. And, you know, creative speed, pace, execution is, is vitally important to be able to win that, that hurdle with Facebook. You know, we were creating multiple creatives a week on any given week. And uh, that was before we brought back in-house a real limiting factor because, you know, you were spending, you could be spending five, 10 grand a month on, on creative with freelancers filling in the gaps yourself and and you know I'm I'm not a I, I'm not a a creative person in that sort of sense and, and was the person who created most of our early ads, which is again very good to get something else in and kind of take those things off. So yeah, it was it was very much driven by driven by need. Yeah. Hiring for the pain, hey. Yeah, exactly. And I guess it's, you know, it became a and I guess within growth generally, it's all it's within kind of paid social, it's less now about, you know, hacking, battling the Facebook algorithm and more thinking about kind of creative, good creative execution. So, you know, if you follow up, if you follow the kind of Zappos approach of don't don't hire out your core competency, then creative becomes a core competency within growth. And so, yeah, need to do something you have in-house. Absolutely. That's a really solid philosophy, actually, and one that a lot of startups miss. They're still chasing growth acts these days, but it sounds like you know where your priorities are at. And enough about the past. Um, I'd love to learn more about the wine list because it looks like it's getting a lot of traction at the moment. And before I go into some of the specifics, I'd love to hear about why you started it in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was while I was at Fry. So I um, mean, as a background, food and drink have always been my two my two big passions. And yeah, the it was while I was at Fry that my boss Hamish recommended I go and do one of the wine courses, which I'd kept kind of banging on about so much and I did uh, so I did the WSET level two the wine and spirit educational trust uh, level two which is a predominantly trade focused course but they do obviously do it for consumers as well and you know this is a course where you go along you're given a 400 400 page textbook uh, which you're told to memorize um you know you sit in a, a room with some strangers three miles in was as almost as cold as our current offices yeah you know kind of sat around a table in the, when it's cold outside, raining, and you know, expect to kind of just go deep into kind of nine hours of learning about wine throughout the day. At the end of it, you get given a test, which is multiple choice, and yet it still takes about six weeks to get your results back from. So I kind of left that experience thinking, do you know what? I, I learned a lot, and the, the learning I got from it was so valuable because I think before I went into that course, I was I was trying to discover the best wine. Um, you know, what's the best wine I can drink in Sainsbury's? What's the best wine I can find in Waitrose? And realized through doing that course that's a really silly way of thinking about wine it'd be like saying what's the best album whereas in fact you know what's your mood what do you like what time of day is it you know um you know, what what do you want from it like are you on your own are you with other people like all of those things are going to dictate what you want to listen to at a given time and the same is true for wine and that was really my big core learning i took away from it that 
that's how wine is. And actually, if you're armed with this kind of ability to interpret wines in different ways and, and judge the rice occasion for those wines, that's where you know you can really, really start enjoying it a lot more. So I took this kind of brilliant learning experience away from it, mixed with this, it felt quite a broken way of learning. It sounds daunting for sure. Yeah, it is. It's 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 very all or nothing. You know, wine is the UK's most popular alcoholic drink. 33 million people drink it at least once a month. Most of those drink it at least once a week. And only 20,000 people a year study for WSET. So, you know, you're talking like 0.01% or less than 0.01% of all wine drinkers study it formally. So wineless is really trying to exist in, in this market of wine lovers who want to know more, are you know, actively engaged in it as subjects. It's not that whole 33 million figure, but, you know, it's a, it's a figure in the millions of people who are actively engaged for whom, you know, they will base holidays around a vineyard trip at a certain point and they'll base going to a restaurant around knowing there's a good wine list there and, and things like that, shop in multiple locations. But broadly speaking, still lack that confidence to even kind of identify to a sommelier what they actually want to drink when they say, well, you know, what, what, what do you like? You know, there's that kind of unease that kind of pops up for people. So that's the world we're operating in um, and we're trying to kind of bridge that confidence gap for those people. The way we do that today is through a home wine course. So we've created a kind of wine course which is focused more on principles and less on memorizing historic regions. And with that wine course, you get bottles of wine sent to you to practice those new skills on. So you'll learn how to taste wine, what how wine is made, how things like climate and weather impact what's in your glass and the different kind of styles of wine and things like that. That's what we've kind of got as a starting point. What we're building next is a lot more digital. So we're building a lot more digital side, something akin to a kind of masterclass-esque experience for wine. We're experimenting a lot, a lot more with on the operational side. So as I kind of said at the start of the call, we've just brought our operations in-house to our own, our own warehouse. And what that will allow us to do is experiment with formats so we can deliver by the glass rather than just as a full bottle. Uh, we might explore bag in box, we could explore canned wines, um, but we could also explore things like, you know, same day delivery and collections and things like that. So it's kind of making all the experience points a lot nicer for our customers. And yeah, the final kind of part of the, the next journey is really thinking about community. And yeah, community is very much a, a buzzword du jour at the moment, I guess. But for us, it makes complete logical sense. Wine is inherently a social thing. We have customers who, their friends became customers at the same time when they get boxes, have a, a, a monthly Zoom with their friends to taste together. We have customers who, before lockdown came about, were inviting their friends over and so we'd send them extra tasting cards and things like that so they can actually have kind of group communal experiences built around our product. So it's, it's a very natural one for us and it's one which we're experimenting with in little ways during lockdown, but we're really kind of thinking about post-lockdown and post-COVID about how we can actually bring people together, enable people to make friends through wine and things like that so that's the kind of horizon where we're where we're heading as well that's really smart it sounds like the first piece there is blending edtech and cpg together yeah that community element as well empowering people to kind of come together over wine which is something so many people love so there's a lot of like different elements there how was the um how did the community side of things perform before the whole lockdown thing or, or was it quite you know a nascent idea yeah i mean prior to lockdown we had essentially about 80 customers so um right yeah we had probably i think we were probably three or four customers who actually said to us like can i get more tasting cards i do this with with our friends or you know we have family over or whatever that might be it was typically older customers as well so you know our customer base is broadly skewed from about 25 to 60 biggest peaks of people in their 30s but you know, the customers in their 40s and 50s and, and beyond 
are probably more likely to have had those, you know, their couples come over for, for a dinner, a party or something like that. So the, the kind of very kernels of those ideas were there before lockdown. Um, but, you know, frankly, the, the cohort sizes are too small to draw too much from. Yeah, that's fair enough. Something to look forward to when this is all over, hey. Um, and it certainly looks like there's a big need for this in the market, especially looking at the success of your recent crowdfunding campaign. Can you tell me a little bit about, well, first of all, why you decided to go down the crowdfunding route and were there any secret ingredients, for lack of a better word, that went into it that kind of helped ensure the success of it? So, you know, we we, we raised the seed round we raised, which was just over 500,000 in the end, was parts a venture capital firm called Hatch, parts some angel investors, some large ticket angel investors, and then part Crowdcube as well. The reasoning behind the Crowdcube aspect was mostly driven through a kind of marketing opportunity um, and a community and a community opportunity. So the two things for us were, you know, we had a thousand customers essentially at that point when we started in the Crowdcube. We're closer to 1500 now um but you know we had around a thousand customers then you know a lot of those people were already huge fans of ours you know we have not got our product into the perfect state yet you know we have so much more work to do on the product side um, but we have customers for whom you know wine list is an absolutely essential part of their life we hosted a dinner in september when when, when restaurants were allowed and we hosted a wine pairing dinner at peckham cellars and we sold that out in about an hour and a half and, you know, those are kind of 50 quid tickets for, for a dinner, which is a wine paired dinner. And that sold up very, very quickly. And the, the customers who came along to that, you know, are huge fans of what we're doing. It's not just those people, there's plenty more of those. So we wanted to be able to give those customers the opportunity to, to get involved. And I think around 100 of our customers ended up investing in some form of NERVA and actually helped drive that kind of very first day big boom of, of Crowdcube growth, so we hit 100% on day one. We started at about uh, 70%, I think it was. So that was for VC and the, the angels beforehand, which really ties into the next part, which is, yeah, you know, there's, I don't, I don't think there are any companies anymore starting a crowd raise with zero pounds raised so far. You know, everyone's got some money and it's about, there's some kind of gamification of that and, you know, kind of working out exact kind of percentages of how much you want to get raised before you go onto the platform and things like that are all kind of balancing acts but yeah it's um it's definitely kind of everyone goes onto the platforms with significant chunks of it raised i do find it slightly disingenuous when people say oh we raised a million pounds in 30 seconds it's like well you raised a million pounds in the six months leading up to that 30 seconds it's just it was all cashed about six years time but yeah so i, I think you know I, I, i'd be lying if i said we, we'd raised 70 percent in the first minutes obviously we didn't so yeah we, we did a lot of fundraising beforehand the platform itself you, you need to be very active on um you know responding to people outreaching to people i started treating every person on that list as if they were already an investor so you know for 500 people who were interested in the campaign i think about 350 of them invested in the end but all of those started getting you know daily weekly updates from me uh, the type of investor reporting which we, we share with our other investors as well so yeah it was very much a very hands-on approach and kind of very full-on the whole, the whole process yeah a lot of work goes into it it's like the overnight success you were an overnight success for six years right it took you yeah. six years to be an overnight success even so on the back end of that successful fundraising activity how is growth going at the moment? Are you kind of investing in any particular channels or approaches to growth that are looking to be promising, especially at the moment with everybody at home? Yeah, I mean, so, so we're still we're still pre-product market fit, and you know, we are we are still trying to get the products into the right stage that suits the audience we need it to. A few of those big levers, which we believe are going to help us there, are bringing fulfillment in house. So, quite a 
probably a kind of boringly logical one, but kind of owning that fulfillment process ourselves. You know, I'm fortunate to have lots of uh, you know, great heads of operations and COOs in my, in my network kind of unofficially mentoring me. All of them have said the same thing, which is bring fulfillment analysis as soon as you can do. And, you know, that's going to improve our customer experience. Up until now, we've had, you know, we've had people this month who put an order in on the 20th of December who didn't get their box until last week, which is just, you know, not, not acceptable at all. So we're very fortunate we've, we've now brought this in-house. This is one of our big steps to improving customer experience, getting towards product market fit. But as I said, the other elements on, you know, how we're thinking about the digital side of a product, how we think about different, um, you know, vessels you can buy in are all elements in that direction. You know, we are obviously spending more on growth, um, but it's kind of with a slight push on the gas rather than a kind of full frost on the gas because, we you know, we, we want to kind of hit that stage when things are kind of flying as well as they can do. Um, you know, we've got a good steer of what LTV is and we can then really kind of push um, as hard as possible then. So this, this first quarter of this year is, is very much around reaching product market fit. Um, with a view that then kind of from April onwards will be very much more pouring, pouring some fuel onto the fire after that. Yeah. How are you measuring whether or not you're getting closer to product market fit at the moment? Um, so we do the, the kind of the infamous, if you how if wine list was to disappear, um, how disappointed would you be? Very disappointed, not disappointed, somewhat disappointed, aiming for 40% on that very disappointed score. We've started doing, we were doing that quarterly last year. We're starting to do it monthly this year. You know, we're looking at retention. We're... We, we have some, one of the highs we made was Fiona, who's our customer experience manager. We now have a far closer relationship to our customers than we had three months ago. And that sort of feedback on a daily basis of, you know, these things aren't quite right. This is this is where the problems are. These customers have joined expecting X, Y, Z. All of those things are kind of playing into that so we can react as quickly as possible. Uh, but yeah, the main marker is the the, the, the score, the best, very disappointing score. Yeah, it's it's tried and tested, hey? Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, the particular framework you're using is Rahul, the, the superhuman founder. He wrote a brilliant long uh, post last year. Um, I think it was the first round he wrote that originally, which details their framework for how you essentially pay attention to the customers who are likely to be your ideal customers and ignore the feedback from the people who are never likely to be your customers. And yeah, tried and tested and it's, and it's been working for us so far. We've gradually seen that number increasing uh, and expect, yeah, by the end of this quarter, it's been well above that 40% mark. Amazing. That's really good to hear. So it's going in the right direction. You've um, also experimented with a vinyl subscription service in the past as well. <laughs> I see you chuckling. Have you? Did you um, learn anything from that experience that's kind of helped you create the roadmap for the wine list yeah absolutely and you know that was um i started that actually when i was at pact with a friend of mine who i'd worked with in the very first digital agency in my first role a guy called luke murphy he and i've always been really into our music and i guess i'd kind of got the subscription bug when i was at pact and suddenly thought oh what else can we, we do like this and it was an absolutely brilliant learning experience. And I think that, you know, had both of us been a bit kind of older in that experience, we probably would have done things differently or had, you know, some other experience too. I think we were, we kind of started it and had the attitude, if this takes off, then we will dedicate more time to it. And um, that's just not how things work. <laughs> um, you know, you need to be very active in that, in that decision-making process. And it always sat on the back burner for us. You know, there was a point we had, 150 customers and we're doing you know three or four grand about revenue which would be the sort which was the point where with wine list i then started raising a pre-seed and would have been a point looking back when yeah it's now now it's time to capitalize on this let's see what we can do with it but instead we didn't and we kind of 
we kind of just let it kind of simmer in the background. Um, we actually sold it last year, not for not for not for a, for a huge amount, but to somebody who a guy called Mike Fiadulu, um, who's actually a wireless investor as well. He's he's really into his music. He knew Luke before. And yeah, very much wants to kind of get it back to its kind of former glory when people actually spent time on it again. So there was lots to learn, you know, knowing about, yeah, I think the main learning was, you know, you need to kind of be, if you want something to be a huge success, you need to be kind of all in on it uh, to a certain degree. Definitely. And it seems like you're doing that now with the wine list. So lesson learned here. Yeah, absolutely. So with the wine list as well, just a, a quick thought that's come up is we've we've touched upon the, the kind of CPG subscription side of things, but the other pieces, of course, content. What are you currently doing to ensure you're, you know, creating the right content to go along with the product itself? And what are the, the kind of challenges and early feedback you're getting from that? Yeah, um, so I guess this is, it, it's funny, my, um, before I started work at all, I used to want to be a journalist when I was very young and at university, I used to want to be a journalist. And my first ever role was in a, as a kind of content um, writer. And so I, I've somehow managed to come full circle where I've managed to bring content very heavily back into the current role, well, current, current place, which we're creating here. Winelist started as a newsletter. Um, so we, we initially started a newsletter about two and a half years ago, three years ago in May. And that was very much as a, you know, the kind of very first minimum viable test for what became the bit which came later and the bit which came later. And so all those little, for all those little milestones, like, you know, are there people who, are interested in learning more about wine, other people who will trust my voice when I'm not, you know, a master of wine or something like that, other people who will, you know, do people want to read supermarket recommendations if they mostly buy wines, which are 20 quid a bottle and things like that. And so uh, the newsletter kind of very much has defined our tone and our voice and how we kind of think about communicating with our audience. Very lacking in jargon. And if there is jargon, we explain it because it has to be there. You know, we try and be really clear with our descriptive words and you know don't you know use some of the kind of absurd descriptions which which some people in the wine could be accused of using and yeah that's very much defined the kind of tone of how we think about content we're thinking a lot more about video now we've got somebody called ellie who's our content she works in our growth team and she kind of manages our social media has completely like 10x what we've done on instagram compared to before got a really kind of coherent instagram visual identity on there now and yeah, you know, we, we are approaching like what types of content we use in the same way we do everything else. We, we, we kind of create hypotheses, we test it, we learn it. Um, you know, do people want to learn about wine news? Is that what our audience are interested in? In which case, let's start featuring wine, wine news stories in there. Um, do people want supermarket comparative tastings? Do people want tastings in, you know, old burgundies? Like what are those questions which people want to do? And we're, we're kind of just testing all those different things, judging how well they react with the community uh, and then doubling down where, where things do work. Is that content acting as an entry point into the brand or is it more for customer experience and edging further towards product market fit at the moment? Yeah, so, I, I, you know, I'm I very much kind of everything we do tries to sit across the whole growth kind of circle, funnel, wheel, um, however you want to describe it, and all become self-fulfilling self, self as well. Predominantly, we aim first of all at retention. You know, we try and get as many of our customers to follow us on Instagram the newsletter when we do like an Instagram poll, we'll talk about the results of that poll. So we kind of have this kind of constant feedback loop where, you know, we're saying to our community, if you engage with us, your voice will be heard and this is going to be heard in a, in a really loud way. And, you know, that is there for customer experience and for retention. But as a result, obviously has the kind of the extra um, flywheel impact of it, Instagram as a public channel. 
with most of the people on there aren't our customers and so they are following us engaging with us starting to see those things and we know over a long period of time people will start off following us on instagram and eventually subscribe to our newsletter and eventually then sign up to our product so playing the long game yeah amazing that's really good to hear so one last question before i uh, before i let you go what are you kind of most excited about launching or building as part of the wine list at the moment what are you jazzed about? It's, it's, the fundraising process is a really funny one because you start talking very much in kind of future states for so long. And so from kind of mid-summer to or kind of late summer to uh, early autumn, late autumn last year, I was constantly talking to investors about what we were about to go and build. Um, and it was things like, we're going to bring fulfillment in the house. We're going to do this online stuff. We're going to do, we're going to change formats up. We're going to think about ways to engage the customers better. And now we're getting to do all of that. So Right now, all of the exciting stuff which we had been talking about so long, we're getting to do. And two days ago, we sent out our very first shipment of wine ourselves. So we, at the moment, we're kind of packing it. A couple of members of the team are packing those boxes. Eventually, we'll kind of move on to that being a probably more permanent role for someone. Uh, at the moment, we're kind of sharing that between ourselves. But yeah, we've got to send wine out ourselves and suddenly got this very tangible physical relationship with the physical product which we're sending and getting to a customer and knowing that everything in that box is perfect and it met that same day delivery promise and things like that. So that was really exciting. I'm at the moment reviewing what will be the new version of the website and what will be the new version of the, the video content. That's really, really exciting. And then in February, we're going to be launching our Bible Glass subscription tier. So that's also very exciting as well. So yeah, it's all kind of happening at once, which is which is great, and um, just happens kind of kind of you know multiple spinning plates at any given time. So, as is the way with startup life, eh? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> cool, Josh. This has been an absolute insightful chat. Thank you for spilling the beans on everything you're up to. Where can people learn more about you and the wine list? Um, so we are at thewinelist.net, um, and we're on various social media channels. Um, we're on Instagram as uh, the underscore wine list. Uh, which you have to find us there um, and same on Twitter. And you can find me personally on Twitter at Josh Lakovic. So that's L-A-C-H-K-O-V-I-C, but I'm sure you'll put, pop a link in somewhere. Yeah. Well, thanks for reminding me, just in case I spell it wrong. I have no excuse now. <laughs> Josh, thanks for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Tom, thank you. That was really good fun.